Well, good morning. Man, so many things to think about when you think about Jesus on the cross and sacrifice of his life and the difference that it makes. I mean, that passage that Isaiah quoted that his blood be on us, that's a horrific passage because those people were saying they could take the responsibility of killing Jesus. No one gets to take that responsibility. I mean, we're gonna be responsible before God, but to take that responsibility on us as if it's insignificant, as if the blood of Christ isn't the greatest gift of love that mankind would ever know, it's still a heartbreaking thing. I mean, to, to understand what that means and then the difference of what it means for Christ to give his blood, to give his life, to wash us clean. It couldn't be two further concepts in the scripture. It couldn't be two things more drastically different than that. And, and we ought to know that. We ought to know the difference. Um, you know, we, if you've been in church very much, uh, you've, you've sung about the blood of Christ. You've heard sermons about the death of Christ. I mean, sometimes it's, it's so common that it's just common. And it's, it's never that. I mean, it's just, it's just never that. At least if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you ought to every day marvel that he would love us. You used to, ought to every day marvel that the Holy One would love us and worship him for his love. But there's so much more you know, involved in what Christ has done for us. And even while he was on the cross, we're gonna look at that today. We're gonna look at or excuse me, Matthew chapter 27, finishing Christ on the cross, verses 45 through 54. But, but even as we see this, we see even God moving through what Christ said and what happened while he was, after he had given up his spirit and see that God was showing the significance of the cross. I mean, it, it was the single most important thing that has ever happened on this, on this earth. Nothing compares not, not the day that you were married, not the day that you had children, not the day that you were born, not the day that a new country was established, not the day that a country fell. Nothing comes close to the day that Christ Jesus gave his life on the cross. And so as we read this this morning, I encourage you to pray, Lord, how significant is the cross to me? How significant is the cross in the way I live my life? So Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split. 
The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was a son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, to think that you would love us to this depth is, is quite honestly the greatest miracle that mankind has ever known. You can do a lot of physical miracles and have, but the miracle of a holy God loving sinners to the extent that he would give his son to die in our place, to suffer the wrath that we deserve, there is no greater demonstration of your love or of your power or the miraculous that we could know. And I am thankful today, Lord, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I'm thankful, Lord, that you made a way for those of us, all of us, who had been estranged from you, Lord God, to be made right, to be drawn near, to have a relationship with you that's personal and intimate, that's life for us. I'm thankful, Lord, that in Christ Jesus and through his blood, all of our sins can be forgiven. That's incredible. And I pray that as we open your word today that you would speak and draw us near to you. I pray that you'd speak to those that have never trusted Jesus as Savior and that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray for those of us that know you, that Lord, we would continually surrender more to you and to trust you more and to find the joy and the peace and the love that comes from you more and more daily. And I pray that, Lord, we would go and share the good news with those that don't have you in our neighborhoods and our families, places where we work and all over our city, Lord. Let us be faithful to you, Lord, and we love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, if you were here with us, we, we started through the cross and, and really started back with after Pilate had condemned Jesus to crucifixion. And we, we talked about just the mocking, mocking of the truth and how Jesus is the truth, right? He is. He's, he even said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And he's just the truth. And yet, man, to acknowledge him as the truth, to acknowledge him as God, to acknowledge him as the one that deserves worship means that we have to put down our own pride, our own reign, our own rule, our own way, means we have to put down you know, the flesh that's in us that, that wants to resist God at every turn and, and tell God what he ought to be and how he ought to live and how he ought to work in our lives. I mean, truly to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the son of God, as the son of man, the son of David, 
the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I mean, it's a, it's a life-changing acknowledgement. And, and yet, to, to reject that means that we have to mistreat him. There's just no two ways around it. Uh, it's still pretty shocking to me how many people tell me that they're Christians with zero evidence of it, zero change of heart, zero humility, zero faithfulness, zero insight, zero love, zero conviction of sin. I mean, so many people tell me that they're Christians and there is not a shred of evidence in their life that Christ has changed their life. And they're, they're hoping that maybe they prayed a prayer at some point in time and maybe that one prayer that had no meaning or no depth and no life change is gonna be enough to save them and it's not because their life is a mockery of God. Their life contains the same things that we read about last week when God would call them or God would claim to be God in their life. They, they put a fake crown on him and they mock him and spit on him and beat him and dress him up like he's king, but they don't treat him like he's king, like the soldiers did. And, and even as he's crucified before their eyes, again, through scripture or whatever they might hear it, instead of saying, Lord, thank you for your great sacrifice for our sins, they walk by and they laugh at him and laugh at his claims and wag their heads at him and say, come down from the cross. If you want to show us how great you are, show us, show us how great you are rather than being thankful for what he's done. I mean, it's a, it's a deep, difficult thing for us to look at the cross. I don't think there's anything that could be more costly to us than to look at the cross because we make decisions as we look at the cross. Last week we saw the mocking and it was everywhere. And quite honestly, we have to decide today, are we gonna mock him? Are we gonna kinda, kinda fake this worship thing like the soldiers did? Or are we, gonna, are we gonna humble ourselves and actually worship him and love him and give him praise? Well, last week Jesus didn't speak in the passage we read. While the soldiers mocked him and beat him and made fun of him, he didn't speak. When the people walked by to mock him, he didn't speak. When the religious leaders walked by to mock him, he didn't speak. When the criminals on the cross beside him in Matthew mocked him last week, Jesus didn't speak because he didn't have to defend himself, right? The truth is the truth. And honestly, he couldn't come down from the cross even if he was tempted to because if he came down from the cross, he couldn't have saved them and he couldn't have saved us. Well, as we continue through this passage, things get pretty intense. And man, I, I want you to know that we sometimes think life is intense, right? I mean, life is, life is intense. The battle for life is intense. I mean, when we pray for those in our church that we love that are dealing with cancer and dealing with Celadon who's going through Potentially a sickness that's going to take his life. We don't really know just yet what God's going to do with Celadon. That gets intense because life is important to us. But I, I, I hope we know that the battle for physical life 
is not the most intense battle. Now, I really earnestly, I mean, I hope that you earnestly know that the battle for eternal life is the most intense battle. I mean, there's a lot of us that, man, we strap it up when something physical is taking place in our life or in somebody else's life. And our prayer life goes really deep when there's physical life that's at hand. But do you not know that the battle for eternal life, for the souls of the people in our family, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, or our acquaintances, is a far deeper battle and honestly, far more important battle? Do you not know that this life is going to end and there will be life eternal, either life in the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ or death in a place called hell, the place the Bible describes as the second death in a lake of fire, suffering and gnashing of teeth, which is life separated from God under his eternal condemnation. Do you not know how much greater the battle is? Because I I hope that we see that in the cross. Jesus is not dying on the cross to give us physical life eternal. He's not. That's not why he's dying. He's dying on the cross to give us eternal life spiritually forevermore. That's the battle here. That's what's taking place. And as Christ is on that cross and people are mocking him and they're laughing at him, they seem to think he's just a normal guy. They seem to think that this is a normal crucifixion. This is not the first time men have hung on crosses outside of Jerusalem on the way to Damascus. This is not the first time. Probably wasn't going to be the last time. And so people are just treating Jesus like he's just a guy, like he's just one of those criminals, mocking him, laughing at him, like there's nothing of significance about him. But at the sixth hour, which in their time would have been noon, their day started at 6 a.m. at sunrise, So at the sixth hour, it would have been noon. At noon on the sixth hour, the Bible says, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, all the mocking was one thing. But when this darkness came, this extraordinary darkness, this unexpected darkness, this superhuman darkness, inhuman darkness, this divine darkness, a darkness that they describe as so thick that you could barely see your hand in front of your face if you could see it. This wasn't, this wasn't a solar eclipse. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse. I mean, the, the, the Passover celebration was always done at the full moon, so this wasn't a solar eclipse. It wasn't even a doubt, not a solar eclipse. This was God beginning to show the significance of the cross. And so at high noon, when the sun should have been at least close to the highest peak of the day, this darkness falls across the entire land and there wasn't anybody that would have been affected by it. And can you imagine what would have been happening around the cross of Christ at this particular time? 
Right, here's these men and women that have been so arrogantly wagging their heads and yelling out offensive, irreverent things at Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, God says, I want you to see that there's nothing insignificant about this cross or about the man that's on it. Matter of fact, darkness would have been an understanding even among the Jewish people as part of God's judgment. Matter of fact, there's this pretty powerful little passage of scripture, Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. It says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon. It will make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. God had already said that this particular darkness wasn't going to be a time of jubilation. It's going to be like a time of mourning for the only son. It's, this is going to be a time where God is bringing about this immense weight of conviction and even the understanding of judgment that he was bringing through Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ is the tipping point. To believe in Jesus means to have life, but to reject Jesus means to have death. And the significance of the cross is applied to every human being, every single one, everyone that's ever lived and everyone that ever will live. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you know. It's not about how powerful you are. It's not about how alive you feel today. It's about God and a relationship with him that can only be had through Jesus Christ. And it is not inconsequential what was happening on the cross. God was letting everyone know that what Jesus was doing was the most intense, painful sacrifice that's ever been given for anyone, anywhere. Well, that wasn't all that happened because after three o'clock, which can you imagine... Can you imagine darkness in the middle of the day for three hours? You think God got their attention? I think God got their attention. Well, then it says, about the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden, out of the cry, out of the darkness, this cry comes out that is so extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I know you've probably read these things before if you've been around church very often, but, but Jesus is speaking to God in a very personal, broken, desolate way. I mean, at this point in time, there's not any doubt in my mind that these three hours have been part of that time where God has poured out the sins of the world upon Jesus Christ, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. And so at this time, Jesus is taking the sins of the world upon him, your sin and my sin, and the sin of every single person that's ever lived and ever will live. It's, 
It's got to be the most indescribable wickedness that we could ever even conjure up. Every filthy thing, every proud moment, every condescending conversation, every kind of wickedness you could twist from gossip to murder, every sin has been poured out on Jesus as well as the wrath of God. He stood in our place and took what we deserved. It's been happening. I mean, it was, again, the most amazing, the most indescribable event the world's ever known. And all of a sudden, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we go back to the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where we talked about Jesus struggling, saying, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And we go back to that and we, we talked about the fact that he had to pray through this understanding that he was going to become the sins of the world. He was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. He was going to pay the price for the wrath of God, for the sins of the world. And we hear him now come to this cross after he has said, I'm ready. Let's get up. Let's go. The one who's betraying me is at hand and he's determined to go to the cross, but now he's on the cross and, and now he's experiencing something that I don't know that I can fully wrap my mind around. And he's experiencing for the first time in eternity sin and the consequences of sin, which is separation from the Father. Now I know that is a, a deeper thought than what I can fully explain to you, but I hope you grasp the magnitude of that. This wasn't an easy, simple, again, inconsequential event in Jesus' life. He's crying out in anguish, my God, my God. If you look at any other time in Jesus' life, he never referred to the Father as God. He always referred to him as my father or as father. It was never my God. And so we see a different mood here in this passage. This is now Jesus experiencing this brokenness on our behalf. The consequences on our behalf. The death on our behalf. For the first time, He's had to recognize the fact that the Father has turned his head away from Jesus as he poured out his wrath on Jesus. I mean, he is suffering. It's not just the physical suffering he's experiencing. He is experiencing every kind of suffering due to you and I in our sin. And it is indescribable. And so he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that he's without hope. It's not that he's misunderstanding what's taking place. He's suffering. And he's suffering for us so that he can save us. 
I mean, I want you to, I want you to think about that. I want you to meditate on that. We sometimes treat Jesus like he's no big deal. Hey, Lord, how are you? How's it going? I got time to talk to the big guy in the sky. Listen, there's only hope for you and I because of this level of suffering that Christ has taken for us. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve this. This would be us if it weren't for Christ. We would be forsaken. We would be cast out. We would be judged. We would be. It wouldn't be an option except for Jesus Christ. And because he loved us, he went to this cross and gave his life. And I love that though Jesus feels abandoned by God, he still says, my God, my God, right? He knows his God. And he's even turning to him in this great time of suffering. Well, thankfully, if we went over to Luke, and I, don't, I didn't even write down the passage, but when Jesus prays here, he yields up his spirit. In a minute, we'll look at that. But in Luke, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he never really, never really lost track of the Father, but he certainly did suffer for us. And so he cries out this great cry, and then in response to him, it's, it's almost, it's not comical, but it kind of is. Because in verse 47, it says, and some of those who were standing there when they heard it, began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking his sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And, and even in his cry of despair, even though he didn't say Elijah, this Eli, Eli, was close enough to Elijah that apparently some of them thought, hey, you know, we've heard of this prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And apparently they'd taken that prophecy and they made of it whatever they wanted to. And apparently they thought that Elijah would come and save those maybe who called out to them. I mean, it's kind of it's convoluted. They were just, they were just wrong in their understanding. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 is the prophecy. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to, his, to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And, and there's too much to go into with that. But Jesus had already talked about John the Baptist being that Elijah who had come before he had come. And these guys were just wrong. I mean, Elijah wasn't going to come. Elijah wasn't the Savior. The Savior was on the cross. But like many of us, right, when the intense battle is going on, we hear things and the first thing we want to do is jump into action physically. It's not all bad. I thank the Lord for compassionate people. These guys had compassion. Some of them did, right? They go, man, he's crying out. He needs to have some, 
some, some salvation. Maybe he's trying Elijah to save him. And they go, let's get some sour wine. Some places call it vinegar. It would have been cheap wine that they would have probably drank around the cross. It would have been no big deal. But if something, maybe they could, you know, take a little relief from. So they go and they get a sponge and they put a reed and they hand it up to him, put it on his lips and, you know, okay, great. But quite honestly, that's not what the battle was for. Battle was so much deeper than that. And we see that battle by the response from the next group because the next group says, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Don't bother with this guy. Let's find out. Let's find out, right, if God would even care enough to send Elijah to save him. And you see the compassion from some, though maybe misguided to some degree. But then you see just this wretchedness and this evil displayed in kind of a crazy way. Let us see where Elijah will come to save him. And my mom was kind of, mom was kind of amazed. I, I don't know how many times I've preached sermons about Christ on the cross. But I'm always amazed by the wickedness. I'm just always amazed by the wickedness, the hatred, just this arrogant, hard-hearted hatred of Jesus Christ who'd never hated and never hurt and never done anything but loved and healed and spoken truth. But then you read Psalm 2, verses two through six, and it gives us some insight into this. It says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And you realize that it's always been this way and it's always gonna be this way that men are gonna rebel against God and against his anointed Jesus Christ. It's always gonna be this way because we're arrogant, we're foolish, we're selfish, we're proud, we're rebellious. And we see it portrayed so clearly just from this hard-hearted group that won't even lift a hand to bring comfort to a dying king, Savior and Lord. And man, sometimes we, we get a little discouraged. I don't know about you, maybe I do. Sometimes when I talk to people about the Lord, man, they're so hard-hearted. Sometimes I talk to people about hope and life They're so hard-hearted. But I know this. Man, God has established his king on his throne. And he reigns. He's going to continue to reign. And whether these guys understood it or not, we have life because of this king on this cross. Well, let's go a little further because... I mean, things continue to get intense because it says in verse 15, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice 
and yielded up his spirit. It's kind of an amazing little statement because here and earlier when Jesus cried out, he cried out with a loud voice and that was, that was a specific mention of a loud voice because those that were on the cross, the longer they were on the cross, the more they would lose strength. They didn't have the strength to cry out. They didn't have the faculties to cry out. It wasn't terribly long before you would have pretty much been incapacitated because of just the horror of what was taking place in your body on the cross. But not Jesus. Jesus was in control when he was crying out in anguish. And Jesus was in control when he yielded up his spirit. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus gave his life. John 10, 17 and 7, John 10, 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. It's even more amazing when you think about the cross, when you realize that though wicked men were behind this, it was ultimately God, right? Saying, you need to go to the cross. And Jesus saying, I'm going to yield up my spirit. I'm going to yield up the part of me that gives animation to my body, my spirit, my life. And he's laying down his life because he loves us. And he cries out with a loud voice in his control, in his time, and in his way. And he dies for the sins of the world. And nothing can be more intense. No wonder sometimes it's so hard to talk about Jesus. I mean, no wonder. It's not just intense to those that we talk about and talk about Jesus too. It's intense to us. When we begin to talk about Jesus, we begin to realize that and we're sinners. Like we, we did nothing for our own salvation. We did nothing to earn God's favor. We did nothing to save ourselves. Jesus Christ was alone on the cross. Everyone else, right, had, had basically abandoned him. Even the Father had left him alone in the suffering for our sins, to pay the price for our sins. When we talk to people about Jesus, we can't say to people, hey, you should trust Jesus because then if you work really hard after you trust Jesus, you'll be a better person. No, you have to tell them, man, you need to trust Jesus because you're a sinner like I am. And I was such a wretched sinner and I was so lost in my sins and, and the consequences of my sin were so deep that I, I had nothing but Jesus. I had nothing but Jesus. I didn't come to Jesus in my goodness. I didn't come to Jesus in my abilities. I didn't have to, I didn't bring anything to Jesus and say, I'll give you this if you'll give me life. No, you, you come to Jesus as a complete and utter desperate sinner with nothing in your hands. And we talk about Jesus and we go, man, if I talk about Jesus to the extent that I feel Jesus in my life and know Christ in my truth, then I have to tell people I am a sinner. 
Do you know how people appreciate that? They don't really appreciate that sometimes because I've had plenty of people say, oh, you're not that bad. Oh, yes, I am. And I wouldn't have to explain that to you if you ever saw a video of my life. We are foul people. And we come to God in our wretchedness and ask for God to be gracious through Christ that we might be made clean, spotless, and acceptable to God. And that's tough for us because we are still a proud people. We are. We still judge one another. We still look at each other and condemn one another as if we have the right to condemn anyone, don't we? If you'll just be like me, if you'll just stop being unlike me, You'll be better off. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that foul, wicked sinners are saved by a glorious and gracious and loving God. And there is nothing that you can do outside of that. And it takes all the attention away from us. And it gives God all the glory. And it sure is a deep call to those that feel awfully proud about who they are, isn't it? And what a glorious Savior we have who would lay down his life and take the initiative to lay down his life. But man, God didn't, he didn't finish with Christ dying on the cross because as soon as Jesus had yielded up his spirit, it says, behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And man, God said, pay attention. It wasn't enough that the darkness had been there for three hours. It wasn't enough that on the cross, the Savior's crying out in agony and despair to a loving God who had given him this wrath and this blackness for us. It wasn't enough that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I mean, those would have been humbling moments. Those would have been shocking moments. Those would have been incredibly convicting moments if you'd been wagging your head and treating Christ like he was a common criminal. But man, when he did give up his spirit, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, where their mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, where God said, I will dwell with my people. He called it the Shekinah glory. It wasn't God himself. It would have been his representation, but no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. And when the high priest went in there, he had to take the blood of a bull and he had to take the blood of a goat or he would go in there and die because you don't approach a holy God unholy. You had to have something wash away your sins. And in the Old Testament, it was a sacrifice of a bull and a goat, or he could not go in. So only one person once a year could go in, and they could only go in through the blood of a sacrifice. And when Jesus died, this curtain that wasn't like a shower curtain, right? It was like four to six inches thick, and I forget how high, probably 20 feet at least, It was torn from the top to bottom. It was God saying, would you pay attention to what's happening here today? I'm making a new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ where men and women like Mike Cooper and like you 
can come into the presence of a holy God. The sacrifice has been made that made a way for all of us to enter into God's presence. Is that not incredible? You talk about the most glorious day mankind has ever known. The day that Christ died on the cross. The temple was torn. If that weren't enough, then there was an earthquake. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Now this is pretty crazy to me because we know what happens at earthquakes, right? If you get a significant earthquake that splits rocks, it tears down cities and kills people, doesn't it? Not this one. It might have split the rocks, but there is no record anywhere that Jerusalem was destroyed or that lives were lost. It was God saying, did you pay attention yet? Shaking things up and going, I have the power to shake this earth anytime I want to, any way I want to. Pay attention to what's happening on this cross through Jesus Christ. Pay attention. The rocks are split. If that weren't enough, the Bible says that the tombs were opened and many of the saints who had died were raised to life. And it says after Christ's resurrection, they came out of the tombs and went into the city and many people saw them. Now, I'm not going to try to figure out how that all worked out. Where were they for the couple of days that Jesus was in the tomb? It doesn't tell us. Apparently, they stayed somewhere until Christ was raised. But do you know how glorious it is to think about the picture when Christ died He paid the price for men and women to be raised to life. Do you see that? That's what Christ did. He paid the price for men and women to be raised to life. You and I need to be thrilled to know that through Christ's death, men and women can be raised to life. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You want a glorious testimony about the power of Christ on the cross, his death and what God has done for us? These men and women came back to life because Christ is life. Guys, we got to understand this stuff. This isn't common. This isn't inconsequential. God is showing us that the significance of the cross is life or death, heaven or hell, and all hinges on whether we believe in Jesus or reject him. But that's not the end of it. It's not the end of it. Because verse 54 says, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, This was the son of God. And here's a man. He's got no stake in the cross. He's a centurion. He would be a man with some authority over 100 soldiers. He's the one obviously in charge (coughs) over keeping the scene of the cross, the crucifixion safe and secure, making sure nobody messed with these guys on the cross. But he didn't really care about Jesus. He didn't really care about the Jews. He doesn't really care about the criminals. He's just doing what he's been commanded to do. He's just out there. Must have been a very unpleasant duty to be in charge of 
a crucifixion because there wasn't anything but blood and suffering and agony and death wouldn't have been the kind of assignment you wanted to get sent to. But he's standing there and he's probably seen the trial. He's watched the soldiers beat and mock Jesus. He's watched everybody walk by and mock him. He's watched the darkness and the change that that brought. He's heard Jesus from the cross crying out in agony and yet yielding up his spirit to the Father. He probably doesn't know the temple veil had been torn, but maybe. But he didn't know there was a huge earthquake and yet things were still standing. More importantly, he'd seen Jesus. He'd seen him not respond to all the mockery, be in control of his faculties, and even say, I'm yielding up my spirit now. And this guy, and when it was all done, looking at Christ dead on that cross, said, truly, this was the Son of God. No doubt in this man's mind, they had just crucified the Son of God. And he couldn't stand there and not confess. There he is. I'm sure he didn't know that Christ had promised to raise on the third day. I'm sure this man must have been broken beyond pieces to think man had been so wicked that they would kill the Son of God. And yet there he is testifying. You see, the cross changes lives. The cross points to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. It's not, it's not a doubt. We don't need the same miracles. We don't need the same evidence. I know people today say, if God would just show us something, we'd believe. Oh, he's shown us plenty. He's shown us plenty. We don't need any more evidence. The significance of the cross is that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He is so worth following. He's so worth loving. He's so worth laying our lives down for. You want a cause that's worth standing for? Stand for the cause of the Son of God who wants to save sinners and give them life and have a relationship with them eternally. Stand for that cause. Stand for the cause of Christ by trusting him. Stand for the cause of Christ by sharing him. Stand for the cause of Christ by loving him. Stand for Christ. Say, he is the son of God. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is my savior. He's the lover of my soul. And I'm not sorry and I'm not ashamed. And I'm gonna confess him every day. And if you don't know him, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How about you confess him today? Let's pray.